0: Thomas Jefferson, as a beloved founding father, celebrated for writing the Declaration of Independence that radically declared all men are created equal. But he also enslaved people, over 600 men, women, and children throughout his lifetime. And historic sites like Monticello, Jefferson's plantation home, are only recently beginning to reckon with that history.
1: When you start to unravel the mythology of Jefferson, You begin to also unravel the mythology of America. And if you tell a more complex story of Jefferson, then you also have to tell a more complex, honest story of this country.
0: From Virginia Humanities, this is With Good Reason. I'm Sarah McConnell. Today, expanding our origin story. The University of Virginia was founded by Thomas Jefferson in 1819, and over the nearly 50 years between 1817 and 1865, the university owned about 4,000 enslaved laborers. Over a decade ago, students petitioned the university to honor the lives of those enslaved people who toiled on the grounds. And descendants of Thomas Jefferson were invited to help develop what eventually became The Memorial to Enslaved Laborers, completed in 2021. Producer Matt Darrow has the story.
2: Remember in grade school when you went on field trips to that one place your town was known for and you would go there over and over? Well, in Charlottesville, that place is Thomas Jefferson's Monticello.
3: When you're a little kid, you always go, I got to go to Monticello again? How many times have I been? Three or four. Did I go with my family? Three or four times and here we are going again. You often wondered, why is the school taking you back again?
2: This is Colleen Yates. She says she went to Monticello so often as a kid, she almost memorized the tours.
3: Back when I was going, going to school and going to Monticello, slavery, you know, was not talked about. So that basically was not The just of the tour, it was um, Thomas Jefferson. We are going to see Thomas Jefferson, and Monticello is his home, and it's here in Charlottesville. And there may have been, you know, a mention of, well, this was taken care of by his slaves. Or if you're walking along Mulberry Road, Mulberry Road was the home of the slaves. So that was mentioned, but that was very little of the conversation.
2: Colleen was at a family reunion the first time she heard that her family was a descendant of Thomas Jefferson. She was 14 years old. That's when Monticello started to take on a whole new meaning.
3: And one of our aunts, who was very, very up in age, of course, was sitting in a rocking chair, and she was sitting on the grounds of my grandparents' home, and, you know, she would beckon over to you, and she'd say, I have something to tell you. And, of course, she whispers in your ear, and she goes, we're related to Jefferson. And I go, which Jefferson? <laughs> and she goes, Thomas Jefferson. Thomas Jefferson. And you kind of look at her and you step back and you go, okay, auntie, can I get you another hamburger? You know, at that point, you just don't believe it because that was one of the first times I'd heard it.
2: As the years passed, one of Colleen's cousins did their own research that seemed to confirm the connection to Jefferson. Then one day, almost out of the blue, Colleen received a phone call from Monticello
3: and that was, that was the shocker of my life. What had happened was they called me and they said, um, we ran across the name George Dewey Yates and we thought of you and we wanted to call you because we wanted to know, was he any kin to you? And I said, yes, that's my grandfather. And that's when Monticello was on the phone and they said, well, that's your tie to Monticello. And I asked them, you know, how was that my tie to Monticello? What does it go back to other than my grandfather? And that's when they said it goes back to Wormley Hughes.
2: Of course, Colleen was full of questions. They told her Wormley Hughes was an accomplished gardener. He dug the goldfish pond at Monticello and even dug Jefferson's grave.
3: The first thing I thought was, you know, all these things that people had whispered to you that you wondered about when you were a kid and how could they possibly be true, all of a sudden you have an aha moment and it comes to you that, gee, you know, even if it was a dying declaration, it's something that they knew that they wanted to pass on to someone else because they wanted to keep the information out there, wanted to keep the oral history out there. And it was kind of a cool feeling to know that, okay, this is where your family's from.
2: In 2019, Colleen was asked to join the Memorial to Enslaved Laborers Committee, the University of Virginia, which was founded by Thomas Jefferson, was planning a memorial to the enslaved laborers who built the university. I tell people I don't
3: think Jefferson lifted nair brick to build a university. That was all the slaves doing.
2: They wanted Colleen's input, on what the memorial would look like and where it would be placed.
3: Of course, at first we were thinking statues, but we did not want to leave anyone out. So do you make a a statue of a male? Do you make a statue of a female? And there were children that were held in bondage and slavery. So it was like, if you don't do a, a, a small statue, you sort of leave out the kids.
2: After more than a decade in development, the Memorial to enslaved Laborers was finally completed in 2021. It's designed as a circle with an inner ring and an outer ring.
3: Where we're standing right now is the open end, and the ring represents a shackle. It's a shackle that's been on a slave, and the shackle is now open. And it's open to welcome the community in and to welcome anyone who wants to come in.
2: A timeline from 1619, when enslaved Africans first arrived in Virginia, to 1889, runs along the inner ring of the memorial. Water constantly washes over the timeline in a symbolic expression of rebirth.
3: And the reason for the water feature was, if you were a slave and you were running away, you were always told to follow the water. Not only would water hopefully lead you someplace better, but the other thing was when the plantation owner knew that you were missing from the plantation, they immediately sent out the dogs and the horses and people to look for you. Once you get into the river, the dog can no longer follow your scent. So that was one of the reasons the slaves were always told to follow the water.
2: Along the inside of the outer ring are countless names etched into the granite wall.
3: You will also see that um, a lot of persons just had a first name. There will also be where you'll see cook, where you'll see seamstress, where you'll see bell ringer and things like that. And people have said, you know, why do you just have like an occupation?
2: Colleen says it's because many of the enslaved people's names have been lost to history
3: going back through UVA's records and looking at the documentation of what slaves were owned and, and their names and who owned them, the committee came across, you know, bell ringer, they came across seamstress, they came across horsemen or whatever. That person that was a seamstress or that person that was a cook, we didn't have a name at that point. So, you know, the thought was to go ahead and leave it off because we don't have a name. But that person is still honored on this wall because we took Seamstress, we took Cook, we took Bell Ringer, and we put it on the wall.
2: Since the memorial opened in 2021, Colleen and other descendants have been giving tours to students and townspeople. She says students of all ages and from all over have come to learn about this history.
3: So um, that was very gratifying, particularly when one of the students had came up to me after the lecture and when we were here. And she said, well, Miss H., she said, you know, slavery in my history book was only a paragraph long. And I said, well, honey, I'm here to tell you that slavery was a lot longer than one paragraph. So this stuff, these events, these things took place in their own backyard. So that's what we try and get them educated on.
2: Research is still being done at the university to identify all the enslaved people who labored on grounds from 1817 to 1865. There are a little over 500 names etched in the memorial now. And between 2021 and 2022, around 12 more names have been added to the memorial. From With Good Reason, I'm Matt Dara.
0: That was Colleen Yates to book a tour of the memorial to enslaved laborers at the University of Virginia visit mel.virginia.edu. My next guest says places like Jefferson's Monticello are at the front lines of shaping public memory. Clint Smith is a writer, poet, and author of How the Word is Passed, a reckoning with the history of slavery across America. His book chronicles his journey to nine historic sites to look at how slavery is remembered and taught, starting at Monticello.
1: You know, Jefferson, I think, in so many ways is a is a microcosm and sort of personifies the the cognitive dissonance and the moral inconsistencies of of the country we live in, which is to say America is a place that has provided unparalleled opportunities for upward mobility across generations for millions of people in ways that their own ancestors could have never imagined. And it has also done so at the direct expense of millions and millions of other people who have been intergenerationally subjugated and oppressed. And both of those things are the story of America. It's not one over here and one over there. It's that they are both deeply interwoven and entangled with one another. And I think Jefferson sort of again like embodies that cognitive dissonance. He's someone who wrote in one of the most important documents in the history of the Western world, and also someone who enslaved over six hundred people over the course of his lifetime, including four of his own children. He's somebody who wrote in the Declaration of Independence that all men are created equal, and then wrote in his book Notes on the State of Virginia that Black people were likely inferior to whites in both endowments of body and mind, as he put it. Didn't believe that the slave was capable of love in the same way that their white counterparts were. And so I think that traveling to Monticello and trying to get a sense of how does this institution, which is responsible for cultivating, communicating, and maintaining the sort of legacy of Jefferson, what does that legacy look like? And how do they talk about what that legacy looks like? And are we talking about a sort of two-dimensional rendering of Jefferson that I was taught growing up thats sort of singularly focused on how remarkable and brilliant of a person he was, or are we telling a more complex and honest story about Jefferson that takes into account very much the fact that he was a brilliant man who is, in many ways, the sort of intellectual founding father of this country, but also is someone who enslaved hundreds of people and separated families and had people beaten and, and forced people to work and to live on, on this plantation and, and other plantations. And so I was really curious how they would tell the story of of who he was, and even beyond Jefferson, how they would tell the story of the enslaved people who lived there, who in many ways, I think that that land belongs to as much, if not more so, than it belongs to Jefferson.
0: What do you remember about driving up the mountain that is Monticello, that is the little mountain that is Thomas Jefferson's home? and setting foot for the first time on the grounds there. What was that like for you?
1: You know, I'm someone who believes deeply in the power of putting your body in the places that history has happened. It's impossible for me to step foot on the land at Monticello without thinking of those hundreds of enslaved people. And, you know, one of the first things that I did when I was there was go to the burial ground of enslaved people. You know, there's, So there's a burial ground up the hill where Jefferson and many of his white descendants are buried. And then there is a burial ground further down the hill that when I visited a few years ago was sort of dilapidated. It wasn't taken care of. There were no gravestones to acknowledge who was and wasn't there. And they, they don't even know many of the people who, who are buried there. They don't know their names. And more recently, Monticello has done work to sort of renovate and honor that space with the sort of dignity that it that it deserves but you know i was i was just standing there and, and i could feel in my i could feel in my body i could feel in my bones the spirits of of these folks the the histories of these people who were working on this you know this mountain that sort of looked over the rest of virginia and thinking about how everything that jefferson did the things that he wrote The things that he said, the ideas he came up with, were made possible by the enslaved people who lived on that plantation, who gave him the time and the space to sort of engage in scientific inquiry, democratic experimentation, wrestle with philosophical questions. All the things that he has become known for are only possible because of the enslaved people who who worked that land.
0: What did you discover? How did they tell the story of the enslaved people at Monticello? Were you disappointed?
1: So so I went on the slavery and Monticello tour. In addition to the main house tour, there's a sort of horticultural tour. There's, you know, Jefferson was an incredibly dynamic person. So there were a lot of different tours that were meant to capture the different parts of his life and legacy. And so I went on this tour with a guy named David Thorson. And David Thorson is this uh, older white guy, sort of professorial, had a broad, large brown brimmed hat. Um, a walking stick. And and he was talking about some of the same things that I had mentioned before, this idea that, you know, what Jefferson said in notes on the state of Virginia is a sort of very clear manifestation of, of his racist beliefs, very clear manifestation of his beliefs in white superiority, and, and sort of outlined the moral inconsistencies in so many of Jefferson's letters and so much of his writing, and talked about essentially how Jefferson knew that slavery was wrong, right? He, he wrote extensively about how, you know, to paraphrase how slavery was on a moral level more dangerous to the enslaver than it was the enslaved. He said there was no excuse for what we are doing to enslave people and that we'll be punished for this. And yet, you know, even knowing that intellectually, he continued to enslave people, hundreds of people, on his plantations. He had four children, of his own that he enslaved, that he had by an enslaved woman named Sally Hemings. And so David is talking about this, and I'm watching these two women who are on the tour with me. There are about a dozen of us on the tour, but these two women in particular I was fascinated with. Their names are Donna and Grace. They were two white women, two older white women. As David was giving his presentation, their faces were wilting, their mouths sort of hung ajar. They were clearly unsettled by what they were hearing. And I went up to them after, and I'll always remember I went up to Donna and I said, you know, I'd love to hear some more about how you were impacted by David's presentation. It seemed like it had a, a, a profound emotional impact on you from what I could tell. And she turned to me and she was just like, man, he really took the shine off the guy. And she was just, I had no idea that Jefferson owned slaves. I had no idea Monticello was a plantation. And mind you, these are folks who bought plane tickets, rented cars, got hotel rooms, who came to this site as a sort of pilgrimage to see the home of one of our founding fathers and yet had no idea that he was an enslaver, had no idea that Monticello was a plantation. And for me, that was such an important moment in the early stages of writing this book, where it was a really important reminder that there are so many millions of people across this country who don't understand the founding of this country or the history of racism or the history of slavery specifically in any way that is commensurate with the actual impact and legacy that it has left on this country.
0: Totally true. Where did you grow up and what did you learn about Jefferson and slavery as a student?
1: This book was in so many ways born out of a recognition that that I, too, didn't understand the history of slavery. So the, the origin of this book is that in 2017, I was watching several Confederate statues come down in my hometown, New Orleans, statues of PGT Beauregard, Jefferson Davis, Robert E. Lee. And as I was watching these statues come down, I was thinking about what it meant that I grew up in a majority Black city in which there were more homages to enslavers than there were to enslaved people. What does it mean that to get to school, I had to go down Robert E. Lee Boulevard? To get to the grocery store, I had to go down Jefferson Davis Parkway, that my middle school was named after a leader of the Confederacy, that my parents still live on a street today, named after someone who owned over 115 slave people. Then I, you know, New Orleans was at one point the, the busiest slave market in the country. And I had no sense of that. And so it, part of this was born out of a recognition that there were profound gaps in my own education, profound gaps in my own understanding of what the history of slavery was and how it shaped my hometown my state, my country. And so I really wanted to go on this journey to learn first and foremost for myself about how we remember the history of slavery and how specifically these historical sites that have a a particular relationship to the institution of slavery, how do they talk about their relationship to that history? Because so often these places are on the front lines of, of shaping public memory.
0: You mentioned you went on three different tours at Monticello, one of them the slave tour, Another one, the house tour, how different were they?
1: They were different. You know, I, I think that my house tour did not mention slavery very much at all. It was focused more on the sort of architecture of the home, the different aspects on how Jefferson built the home. And, and you know, what the way that they tell the story now is, you know, slavery is mentioned. And I think different docents will mention it to different degrees because obviously that home was built largely by the hands of enslaved laborers they also had a Sally Hemings tour which they instituted just recently in 2018 or re- not a Sally Hemings tour but a, F- a Hemings family tour and the Hemings family was one of the m- most prominent enslaved families on on that land uh, sally hemings was the half sister of jefferson's late wife and then jefferson went on after his wife died to have four children who went on to live into adulthood with sally who was a quarter Black and three-quarters White. But obviously, given the nature of how races and the contours of race are shaped in the context of American history, she was considered Black and, and was less enslaved.
0: I was a young woman covering news when I remember the furious debate at the suggestion initially that Jefferson would ever have impregnated or had sex with Sally Hemings. There was outrage at the very notion that such a venerable historic figure, would have stooped to do such a thing. The debate went back and forth and back and forth until finally there were DNA samples that shed light on it.
1: Yeah, there was a DNA test that, that made it clear that Jefferson was the father of Sally Hemings' children. There was a, a concerted effort to prevent that part of his story from becoming part of the public discourse. and And I think his brilliance... <laughs> has long been sort of understood that he was a sort of human manifestation of the American experiment and the American project. And so when you question Jefferson or when you take Jefferson and and try to understand the totality and the complexity of who he was and not just the things we should be proud of but also the things that we might be ashamed of and might have to grapple with when you start to unravel the mythology of Jefferson you begin to also unravel the mythology of America. And if you tell a more complex story of Jefferson, then you also have to tell a more complex, honest story of this country. And I think so many people's sense of selves, so many people's identities for so long have been tied to a story of America that wasn't fully true or that wasn't telling the full story, that erased and pushed aside narratives and perspectives that Complicate our understanding of what this country is and what it has done or not done for different groups of people.
0: Can you imagine an America where we tell this full story and where we acknowledge the hideousness of this past and ongoing experience and yet somehow find joy as a nation and story as a nation that we can also celebrate?
1: I I do. I mean, I think that this country, like I said before, is is unlike any country that has ever existed. I love this country. I'm deeply proud to be an American. I think that there's so much that this country has done that would not be possible anywhere else in the world. And this country has also enacted horrific violence against generations and generations of people, against indigenous people, against black people, against so many immigrant groups— and if we are going to take seriously what our country is and what our country wants to be, we have to take seriously what it has been. Because if you don't understand the history, then you look around, you know, our country and you think the reason one community looks one way and another community looks another way is simply because of the people in those communities rather than what has been done to those communities over the course of generations. And as somebody who grew up in New Orleans, you know, in the in the eighties and nineties. Or remember being inundated with these messages about all the things that were wrong with black people, and if black people just work harder, if black people stop being so lazy, or if black people stop being so violent. And you're inundated with these messages that tell you all the things that are wrong with you, and all the things that are wrong with people who look like you, and all the things that are wrong with your community. And I didn't have the language or the history or the toolkit with which to push back against it, to understand the myriad pieces of public policy, the myriad historical phenomena, the myriad of social interventions specifically and intentionally prevented Black people from having access to the levers of upward mobility that white Americans had in this country for generations. And so once you get that information, then it disabuses you of the idea that the problem is the people rather than the systems and structures and institutions and policies that have prevented people from having access to, to the things that they, they should. I mean, for me, that when I learned that stuff, it was so liberating it was so freeing. It was it was emancipatory because I knew that this country couldn't lie to me anymore about why my country looked the way that it did, why inequality manifested itself in the way that it did, why d- racial disparities existed in the way that they did. And unfortunately, we are not always giving our young people the tools to understand why our country looks the way that it does.
0: You write about your conversation with Naya Bates, former director of African-American History at Monticello. She said, for the first 30 years, Monticello was a museum. Tours were given by Black men dressed up as enslaved people. And you write that you almost choked on your tongue when you heard that. Why?
1: I think just imagining the idea that Black employees of a museum would dress up as enslaved people and give tours to white visitors it was a deeply upsetting sort of revelation especially knowing how they told the story of monticello at that time monticello is only in the last 20 or 25 years begun to tell a fuller more honest story of who jefferson was you know if you i've i've received messages from so many people who visited monticello um you know, in the 70s and the 80s and the 90s. And, you know, the way that they talk about their experience on these tours was like, they were like, nobody mentioned slavery. Nobody talked about Sally Hemings. Nobody mentioned that Jefferson had enslaved children. And so it's this sort of strange mix of like the conspicuous absence of discussion around slavery and, and the role that it played on these, sites combined with the sort of imagery of Black men dressed as enslaved people.
0: And some of them had themselves been descended from enslaved people.
1: Absolutely. And, you know, it it makes my stomach churn to think about how, what it must be like to be the descendant of a person enslaved at that plantation and then to, to be made to dress up as an enslaved person and then to tell a story about that land that wasn't true, or was only half true, or was purposefully erasing a, an enormous part of what made that that site what it was.
0: Sometimes I think of history as so distant, so primitive, right? So far away. And other times it's right there. And we are deeply and intimately influenced by it in ways that I haven't appreciated. Did that happen for you at Monticello?
1: Yeah, I think it happened to me in Monticello and throughout the book, part of what happened is that I started writing the book with the intention of trying to understand how the scars of slavery are etched into the landscape all around us. And in trying to get a sense of our collective physical proximity to this history, I think I got a clearer sense of our collective temporal proximity to this history, how this history we tell ourselves was so long ago just wasn't that long ago at all. I mean, I think about the woman who opened the National Museum of African American History and Culture alongside the Obama family in 2016. And she was the daughter of an an enslaved person, not the granddaughter, not the great-granddaughter, a woman who opened the National Museum of African American History and Culture in 2016, who rang the bell to sort of signal the opening of this museum, was the daughter of a man who was born into slavery. My grandfather's grandfather was enslaved. So when my, my young son sits on my grandfather's lap, I imagine my grandfather sitting on his grandfather's lap, and I'm just reminded again that this history we tell ourselves was a long time ago, wasn't that long ago at all. And so the idea that anyone would suggest that this history has nothing to do with the contemporary landscape of inequality, the idea that anyone would suggest that the history of slavery doesn't continue to shape our social, political, and economic infrastructure, it's revealed to be just morally and intellectually disingenuous. And so... You know, that for me is what, as more than anything almost is what I want people to, to take away from the book. That there are people who are still alive today who knew, who loved, who were raised by people who were born into bondage. We're only a few generations removed from that. And, and it continues to shape our country in, in every single way.
0: Clint Smith, terrific book. Thank you for talking with me on With Good Reason.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Clint Smith is a staff writer at The Atlantic and author of How the Word Is Passed, a reckoning with the history of slavery across America. This is With Good Reason. We'll be right back. Welcome back to With Good Reason at Virginia Humanities. Gail Jessup White's journey to uncovering her family's roots brought her to Thomas Jefferson's Monticello. Now she works there. Gail's a public relations and community engagement officer at Monticello and the author of the memoir, Reclamation, Sally Hemings' Thomas Jefferson and a descendant's search for her family's lasting legacy. Gail, when did you first hear about being a descendant of Thomas Jefferson? Well, I was 13
4: years old, living in Washington, D.C., And I overheard a conversation between my oldest sister, Janice, who's almost 20 years older than I, a conversation Jan was having with my dad, and it was about a dinner party that happened at the American Embassy in Saigon. And I heard my sister say, in a very dramatic fashion, with great flair, because that's who my sister is, and I said, I'm a descendant of Thomas Jefferson. And I was shocked, as I'd never heard such a story. And Thomas Jefferson was my favorite president at that time. And I couldn't imagine how I, a little black girl in Washington, D.C., could have been related to the third president of the United States and the author
0: of the Declaration of Independence. What did you do immediately after that? Did you just ponder this in your heart? Well... (laughs) And <laughs> once I worked through the shock of it, I went to my dad and I asked
4: him about it. And daddy's response was, well, that's what they say. And he had little more than that to add to it at that point. My dad knew that in order for him to have had the light skin, the color that he had, it would have been likely, since he was born in 1915, that someone in his family A woman in his family had been compromised, had been exploited, had been raped, perhaps. And he carried with him a kind of shame associated with that. So he didn't like to talk about it, but I was so curious and I needed to know. So I started watching TV with him. He loved football. He loved golf. And... Eventually, he began to open up to me, and we started having these wonderful conversations about his childhood. And I learned that his mother was, in back from Charlottesville, and that she died when he was five years old. And ultimately, I ended up, after literally decades of prying and prodding and searching and untangling, at Monticello, where I really uncovered the truth of my connection to Thomas Jefferson and the
0: families he enslaved. I heard that the first time you visited Thomas Jefferson's plantation home, Monticello, you were on a date with a man who eventually became your (laughs) husband. Is that true? (laughs) That is true. That's true.
4: My husband's name is Jack White, Jr. My husband was a columnist and correspondent for Time Magazine for 33 years. I used to watch him on television, and I had a real crush on him. And we had a a rendezvous, a date, at Monticello. And at the time, the guides would make reference, some of the guides, not all of them, would make reference to Jefferson having possibly had relations with a woman he enslaved, Sally Hemings. And when the topic came up the first time I visited Monticello, some 20 years ago now, I would raise my hand and I would say, well, I'm related to Sally Hemings and Thomas Jefferson. At that time, not knowing exactly how I was related to them. And the guide, the first time, dismissed me. The second time we visited Monticello, we went through the same act, dismissed by the guide. And some years later, I was visiting with my son, it was that point 17 years old. And the guide made the same reference. Some historians believe that Thomas Jefferson and a woman he enslaved Sally Hemings had children together. And I raised my hand and I said, oh, well, we're descended, pointing to my six-foot-tall son. And the guide said, well, in fact, you're dignitaries, your family. Please join us after the tour and we'll take you to the dome room and I'll show you some of the material that we have connecting Jefferson to Sally Hemings. And That opened up for me a world I'd been seeking to connect to from the time I was 13 years old. And at that point, I was well into my 50s. So it's been a lifelong journey. I should mention, this is important. The way my sister learned that we were related to Jefferson was through my father's aunt, the half-sister of his mother, Her name was Aunt Peachy. The family called her Aunt Peachy. Her legal name was Virginia Robinson. She was not related to Jefferson. She, as I mentioned, was my grandmother's half-sister. Aunt Peachy could not read, write, or even spell her own name. She had a proclivity to believe old wives' tales and to repeat them over and again. What she also repeated over and again to my oldest sister, Jan, was that she would say, you're descended from Thomas Jefferson. I'm not, but you are. My sister carried that story with her all the way to Asia and back to my parents' living room where I heard it for the first time when I was 13 years old. I've carried that with me all these years, ultimately, Uncovering that I am descended, my family is descended from Jefferson and his wife through one of their great-great-grandsons. I also learned that I'm descended from Sally Hemings' brother, Peter. Not from Sally Hemings, but from her brother, Peter. I'm his three-times great-granddaughter. Peter was a cook and a brewer at Monticello.
0: He was 50, you write, when he was sold for a dollar to his nephew, who freed him. Tell me about the freeing of Peter and the non-freeing of other members of his family. Well,
4: so when Jefferson died on July 4th, 1826, he died deeply in debt. And everything he owned, including human beings, had to be sold. So six months after Jefferson's death, there on the West Lawn, Some historians believe some 130 men, women, and children were gathered to be sold. It was in January. It was cold. They were frightened. They were to be separated from people they loved, some never to be seen again. Among them were members of my family, including Peter Hemmings. Peter was in his 50s at this point, originally listed on records as being for sale, a human being, a man for sale, for $100. It's believed that he negotiated, had a gentleman's agreement, so to speak, with other purchasers who declined to bid on him, and he was purchased by a nephew. However, his wife, Betsy, my three-times great-grandmother, and the woman who would become my great-great-grandmother, whose name was Sally, named after her aunt Sally Hemings, remained enslaved. Betsy died enslaved. Sally Hemmings Robinson, she married a man named Edmund Robinson, was manumitted in 1865, along with four million Black men, women, and children. So, She spent much of her life enslaved as well.
0: It's interesting that through these oral histories and then through the other documentation that you can begin to have a feeling, an empathetic feeling for what the lives and joys and traumas were to blood relatives so long ago, right? It's
4: extraordinary how connected I feel to my family, to my ancestors. What I have from them is their determination, their striving to have more and to be more, to be recognized as human beings, as whole. What I have inherited from them is their hope because without that hope, they would never have survived. We all need that hope that the next day will be better for us and for our children and grandchildren. They pass that down to us, and I feel that from them. Having found this part of my family, and it's not, (laughs) it's just a part of it. Remember, this is my dad's family, not mom's. I have a sense of wholeness that I never had in my life. A sense of connection. Monticello is my ancestral home, and I feel it. Every day I'm
0: there, I feel that place is mine. So Jefferson was your favorite president growing up, before you ever knew you were related to him. What do you make of him now? Do you still admire him? Are you proud to be descended from him?
4: Well, I've I've been asked that question before. It's not a matter of pride or shame. It's it's just a fact. It is what it is. I'm descended from Thomas Jefferson, his fifth great-granddaughter. Jefferson was a complex individual, who has a mixed legacy, doesn't he? Jefferson did in fact, however, give us among the most famous words in human history, all men are created equal. And because of that, he cannot be dismissed. Think of the movements, not just in this country, but around the world, built upon those words. However, it must also be recognized that he was a complex and flawed human being. The story at Monticello is one of inclusiveness of Black history, which is American history, and that enslavement in all of its horrors had within it families who survived because they had hope, because they had dreams for the future, because in between all that free labor, all the horrors that were occurring around them, they still managed to find joy. I think it's hard for people to imagine that, but I try to take people there with me because I know that were there not hope, had they no joy, had they not experienced joy somewhere within those horrible confines of enslavement somewhere, that I wouldn't be here talking with you today.
0: Gail Jessup-White is the author of Reclamation, Sally Hemings, Thomas Jefferson, and a descendant search for her family's lasting legacy. She's also a public relations and community engagement officer at Monticello. James Madison's Montpelier holds the unique distinction of being the only historic site where power is shared equally with descendants. It's a system called structural parity, which allows the descendant community equal representation on Montpelier's board. And James French, a descendant himself, was recently elected board chair and represents the descendant community at Montpelier.
5: So I'm a descendant of at least two of the three main families in Orange County, Virginia, in the Piedmont region. And those families are the the Madisons, the Newmans, and the Barbers. So we all know James Madison, the fourth president of the United States. The Newmans were a very large landowning family who lived right next door and in between Madison and Barber. And Barber was the 18th governor of the state of Virginia. He was governor during the War of 1812, senator and ambassador to England. And James Barber and James Newman both had children with their enslaved people. So James Barber impregnated a woman named Priscilla, and James Newman impregnated Rachel. And I'm a descendant of Rachel and Priscilla.
0: How did you find out you were? Did you always know that as a little boy growing up?
5: I've always known, and it's been part of our family history. I would add that all of those families, the white families and the black families, intermarried, had families together. And so it really is a... A community of descendants. The house that I live in today was built by my three times great-grandfather in the 1850s, who built it while enslaved. And he purchased land from his father and paid him back. And he uh, bought the freedom of his, of his wife as well. And so they had 10 children, and built a house in Barbersville in the 1850s. And their children, their 10 children, each came back after the end of the Civil War. When slavery ended, they came back and they added on to that house and it's remained in the family ever since.
0: So you live in a house that was once owned by the people who enslaved your family.
5: Property that was once owned, but it was built by my three times great grandfather. In fact, he also built their house. So he built the Barber Mansion and all of the mansions here from the Madison's Mansion to the Newman Mansion, which is called Burlington, were built by enslaved people, very skilled enslaved people. Imagine this. Imagine you're a large property owner, you own thousands of acres, and you want a Greek revival mansion uh, replete with Doric columns and you know, various uh, features that go from the Georgian era to the kind of the Greek revival fad at the time. You have never been to Greece. You've never been to Europe, but that's what you want. And so you're asking enslaved people to build something that only exists in your mind, and they've never been there, and they do it incredibly well. Imagine the skill that that involves.
0: Do you think you have a more nuanced understanding of what it was like for African Americans and white Americans to be living with and near and among each other, a more nuanced understanding than most people do.
5: My understanding is born from the fact that when you are in a community, such as a plantation, and let's take Madison's plantation, Madison and his family enslaved over 300 people for over 140 years. And looking at the numbers for every Madison family member, there were 28 enslaved people on average. So my understanding is that is a community. Madison himself grew up in an African American community. And in communities, ideas and thoughts and all the things that make us human flow in all directions, not just in one direction, but in all directions, especially across generations. So, for example, there is a book that the Madisons and the Jeffersons both coveted back in those days. It was a book on the science of rhetoric. It was written by a Dr. Hugh Blair. And for them, that book was one of the essential textbooks for a child of privilege who was receiving classical education. And recently, when I was looking through the artifacts in our house, built by my three times great-grandfather, again, born enslaved and who built the house with his own hands, I was absolutely stunned to find that book. Because what it tells me is, here is tangible proof in my hand that ideas were valued and shared and went in all directions, and it's also an act of agency. It is, the way I see it, my ancestor saying, I want to know what they know. I want to have at the tips of my fingers the very essence of the power that they have.
0: The Descendants community that you're part of recently gained structural parity at Montpelier. What is structural parity, and how significant is it?
5: Structural parity is actually very significant. It is a relationship between the institution that is charged with being a steward of the history of a a given site, of a historic site, and the community of descendants who, who built the site. And so it's a very powerful paradigm for involving people who are descendants of those who built the site as equals, not as advisors or people that you call from time to time, but as equals.
0: What if people say to you, yeah, but you're not experts in museum curation. And if you have this wonderful noble effort to have descendants on the board, what will they know about how to tell the story of an historical site?
5: Well, let's say that institutions in general of this type have a board of regionally prominent people who care very much about the institution, but who may or may not have any extensive knowledge in those aspects of the history of the institution that have been untold for centuries. And so, descendants, you have to remember, care deeply about the institution. Our ancestors are buried in The cemetery. Our ancestors are buried in the fields. We don't just have skin in the game. We have bones in the ground. And that is something that can't be replicated. The way that structural parity works is truly Madisonian, in essence. What it says is that the descendants themselves are not necessarily on the board, but it gives them the right to elect representatives to be on the board, which is the essence of democracy, right? To be able to elect your own representatives. So we're taking Madisonian principles and we're applying them to the administration of the site itself.
0: And is this the first historic site of its nature that has instituted structural parity on its managing foundation board?
5: Absolutely. Montpelier is the first institution of this type or of any type to institute structural parity. It's a really exciting achievement, and we're very, very proud, and we're very excited about it.
0: Can you see going forward this happening all over?
5: There's no question that we are uh, being looked at as a model for other institutions. Uh, They contact us uh, frequently. We have uh, spoken to institutions as far away as Britain, we're looking at partnerships across the nation. Structural parity, is, in essence, is a governance model. So it's not restricted even to a museum. It can be applied to any type of cultural institution.
0: What is your dream for Montpelier and how going forward do you want to edify and inspire people who come to the grounds to see what the legacy is from this place?
5: I want to invite all Americans to come to Montpelier. It's very important that we all see Montpelier as part of our common heritage. The story of the Constitution is one of the most important stories of this land. We have this iconic document that inscribes the fundamental rights that we have as Americans. So it is a document of liberty. And yet, it was created in a context of the opposite of liberty, which is slavery. And that's a paradox. And in any paradox lies a tremendous learning opportunity. And so Montpelier is probably the best site for learning about liberty and our origins as a democracy than any other place in the the country. And we believe, as a museum of our origin story, that by delving deep inside this origin story by coming here and, and looking at it and hearing the whole truth about our origin story. What we can do is we can bring Americans together across deep divides. Montpelier really aspires to be a place where Americans can reconcile with their past and face the future with greater resilience and be a more united country. Montpelier is a place for uniting Americans. And and that's something we take very, very seriously.
0: James French, thank you for sharing your insights with me.
5: Thank you so much. I really appreciate it.
0: James French is the board chair at James Madison's Montpelier. With Good Reason is produced by Virginia Humanities, which acknowledges the Monacan Nation, the original people of the land and waters of our home in Charlottesville, Virginia. Our production team is Allison Quantz, Matt Darrow, Lauren Francis, and Jamal Milner. Cassandra Deering and Aviva Costo are our interns. Special thanks to Jenny Taylor for booking assistance. For the podcast, go to withgoodreasonradio.org. I'm Sarah McConnell. Thanks for listening.